0: In March 1836, the commanding general of a large U.S. Army force had foolishly boxed himself in to a hastily built fortification, a 250-yard quadrangle fortified with log breastworks and earthen bastions. He called it Camp Izzard after a West Point-trained officer who had perished on the first day of what became known to history as the aptly named Battle of Camp Izzard. The camp was located along the Withlacoochee River about 20 miles southwest of today's Ocala, Florida. The expedition's leader was General Edmund P. Gaines, commander of the U.S. Army's Western Military Department based in New Orleans. Upon learning of the Seminole's annihilation of Major Francis Stade's column in late December, 1835, and their subsequent rebuff of General Duncan Clinch's advance against them in early January, 1836, Gaines quickly amassed a military force and rushed off to Florida to join the fight, despite having no orders or authority to do so. Gaines found the Dade site, buried the fallen with honors, and set out to avenge Dade's men and the army's honor. Resupplying at Fort Drain, Gaines believed he could quickly find the Seminole, whip them into submission with a combined force of regulars and militia, and evict them to the Oklahoma territory. Instead, he found himself besieged and beleaguered, facing a force of Seminole he could not perceive, at a small camp he could not escape, into terrain he did not know his way out of. As his supplies dwindled, his men began killing and eating their horses and mules to survive. Anxious with the precariousness of his position, Gaines sent messengers begging for relief from the commander of U.S. Army forces in Florida, the aforementioned General Clinch, but thus far no relief had been forthcoming. Therefore, Gaines speedily agreed to parley when he received such a Seminole request. The Seminole told him they were willing to let his starving army retreat unmolested if he agreed to leave them alone in Florida. He was close to agreeing to this truce condition when men from General Clinch's late-arriving relief party stumbled onto the camp and, unaware of the negotiations, began firing. The Seminoles withdrew. The war would drag on for another seven years. We who look back at the poor timing can only despair and ask, what if? In this episode, Sean Norman, acting executive director for the Gulf Archaeological Research Institute, returns to the Seminole Wars podcast to help us address this great what-if question. He will explore how the specialized study of conflict archaeology informs his study of this Seminole War site and how an acronym called COCOA can aid archaeological teams in complementing and, in some cases, verifying written accounts of military engagements such as this one and why one must be judicious in the use of Kakoa in seeking to account for what the archeological survey shows versus what the historical record states. As Camp Bizarre is the first site Gary began surveying from the Seminole Wars, starting back in the late 1990s, Sean will address Gary's challenges in locating and excavating the camp's remains. And he will examine why camps and forts in Florida were so short-lived in their day and left such ephemeral signatures on the landscape In the many years since. Sean Norman, welcome to the Seminole Wars.
1: Uh, thanks for having me
0: here. There's an overall heading for the type of archaeology you're doing at these battle sites and former forts and camps. And my understanding is it's called conflict archaeology. Please tell our listeners what conflict archaeology is and what it entails. (laughs) Essentially, conflict
1: archaeology is now the more modern term for what we call battlefield archaeology. It encompasses essentially the archaeology of violence. They call it conflict archaeology now so that you can incorporate things that don't necessarily have to do with wars, so that might be massacres of government against people or something like that that's not an outright war, or other violent acts. Conflict archaeology, for the most part, is based out of historical archaeology. You do have some prehistoric stuff, but it's largely historic, except it uses a lot of unique method. For example, metal detecting is far more important in this than probably any other form of archaeology. It does involve some excavation, but a lot of times less, and then looks at larger landscapes and focuses a lot of times on terrain as well.
0: Metal detecting can find buried objects, but sometimes in the course of your surveys, you find human remains. What special considerations do you have when you find those? There are
1: conflict archaeologists who largely specialize in just looking at human remains. The type of trauma that people were subjected to didn't reveal a lot of information. Things like execution sites, mass graves, and then even just battlefields. There's definitely a lot to look at, but something that's not quite as common in the Seminole Wars right now. In the cases of the sites where I work at, most of the time, human remains have been removed from the battlefield. Seminole tended to remove their dead or wounded very, very quickly during the engagement. There have been a series of endeavors to remove American soldier remains from these battlefields. I don't really deal with them too much myself. Usually each place has a series of you know, legal ordinances that you follow. Then what you try to do is you connect up with representative communities. For example, something like Daughters of the American Re- Evolution, they'll usually see about having an interment into usually the appropriate cemetery.
0: And the Florida climate also is a factor in whether you find human remains or not from the Seminole War era.
1: Yes, this is true. Yeah, Human remains don't do
0: very well without some sort of protection in Florida. The acronym Cocoa represents a systematic approach that conflict archaeologists employ to analyze a battle site. What is cocoa and how is it employed on Seminole War era sites? KOKOA,
1: which is K-O-C-O-A, Key Terrain, Observation, and Fields of Fire, Cover and Concealment, Obstacles, and then Avenues of Advance and Egress, is it really an application for people working on American Battlefield Protection Grants. It's based on modern uh, military strategy and tactics from the U.S. Army, and it's kind of a way of considering the entire landscape how that would have applied to the battlefield, and to how people use terrain. It's a way to have a standardized analysis for these grants, but there are several problems with it.
0: So what are some of these problems with applying Kakoa to one's analysis?
1: Some of the problems with KACOA are the way we use this analysis and then the way you put that back into the past. When you're looking at the terrain, you're having to assume that the people involved in the battle are looking at the terrain the same way. No, that's not true. If you look at the history of West Point education, that definitely changes over time. At certain periods of time, terrain wasn't considered as as important. Later on, when terrain gets more consideration, it's often considered important, but each unit might have to consider their terrain, and that's it. So you might not be looking at the terrain in total. And the other thing is, is you have access to information. Nowadays I can pull up LIDAR maps, GIS maps, aerial images, and then USGS topographic maps, anything I really want. Bird's eye view of the terrain. And that really wasn't always the case. Battles civil war were impacted by more local road maps and stuff like that, even though these were well known areas. Flying that to the Seminole War and it's exponential. Um, essentially there are very few Produced roads, Very few maps. Almost none of them are accurate. You're in very foreign types of terrain, foreign types of vegetation. And so the thing is, there's really not good information. They are literally walking in blind. When you start to walk into the edge of a swamp, you might have no idea how far you're going to be walking, how deep the water is going to get, where the hammocks are that makes it really, really judgmental on our part if I'm applying COA, assuming that someone like Richard Keith Call, Thomas Jessup has the exact same information that I do. And then you compound that with another difficulty that my colleague Dr. Michelle Savilich pointed out in an article on a book on asymmetrical warfare, I believe also in her dissertation, where the issue that Seminole are using terrain differently than the American force, the regulars Water is a massive, impenetrable obstacle, and a lot of the volunteers were mounted units. They were useless at the edges of wet where horses got bogged down, so any idea that they were going to be able to be able to move around quickly was immediately lost. Also, a reason why you don't really see the similar using horses too much in the battles. An obstacle to one side is actually an avenue of advance and egress for the other side. Seminole Wars, and really all asymmetric warfare, whether you were studying Afghanistan, Syria, any of the Plains Indian Wars, both sides are using essentially different Kakoas. You really have to make it to represent both sides because you're coming across with different military paradigms, tactics, weaponry, all that's different. And so you have to be careful with Kakoa. It's a great way to get everyone on the same page of making similar style maps in their report, but there are a lot of key considerations you have to put into it depending on what conflict you're looking at.
0: To help us understand seminal movements and tactics in a given battle, does Kokoa analysis work in tandem with the existing records, or does it replace them?
1: It works in tandem. You've got enough reports of Seminole just disappearing into the river or into the swamp against like Winfield Scott, the reason why he's never able to pin them down in battle in his Spring 1836 campaign. When you come into something like Wahoo Swamp, you already know that Seminole can travel through water fairly easily. So what you do is you use that to inform your Kakoa, and then at the same time, you're performing the terrain analysis. So you're kind of matching up things that you learn from the historical record as far as tactics go, and then you compare that to the terrain. Like, they kind of build on each other. If you know the Seminole travel through water and you do the terrain analysis, you find where the access points, where they might have come from, where you would have been at good, affordable locations or something like that, and you can use that to build on each other. with the... U.S. regular side, you might be looking generally high ground. But for example, Wahoo Swamp. Almost all the mentions, all the accounts of the battle, involve the very end section of it, very small portion of the battle. There's less information on the groups that don't actually make it there. Therefore, you've got groups disappear and get stuck in the swamp. But that's not even necessarily explicitly stated because they never make it into the engagement after lightning. You're using terrain, and then you're using the documents, So, in what's there, but also what isn't there. You have to use the two in conjunction.
0: Turning our gaze to a specific battle and site, what was the purpose of the Camp Izzard Project?
1: The Camp Izzard Project were two studies conducted by Gulf Archaeology under the leadership of Gary Ellis. First one completed in 1997, second one uh, was in 2001. These were projects to essentially locate and evaluate the Battle of Camp Izzard on behalf of the Seminole War
0: Historic Foundation. Sean, set the stage for the battle for us.
1: Let's go through the whole campaign for it. Camp Izzard marks the culmination of the second significant offensive by the U.S. military during the Second Seminole War. Dade's column is completely obliterated at the end of 1835. By mid-January, that news has come out and about of the handful of survivors like Ransom Clark. News reaches Edmund Gang, who's commander of the Western Department of the military in Louisiana of Dade's obliteration. He immediately jumps into action. He puts out a request to the Louisiana governor for troops, puts in a request to the Louisiana legislature for funding for supplies, immediately sets up the Navy to cooperate with him and assembles an army. So by late January, he's already assembling steamships out of Pensacola. And I think it's January 23rd, Secretary of War knows what he's doing and tells him to stand down because this isn't his theater. Winfield Scott is actually the commander of the Eastern Theater. And so he's leaving his post without orders and is going to personally invade Florida. He travels from New Orleans, Pensacola, and then lands at Fort Brooke, And he's there by February, and he's going to, to locate Dade's battle and then see if he can bring the assailants to justice. He turns actually south once he leaves Fort King and briefly heads towards the Peace River. Thinking that is where the Seminole fled to. He then turns around and then goes up the 14th Road towards Fort King, where eventually on February 20th, they come across the remains of Dade's unit. They bury the dead, do what they can, and then they make firsthand report of the site. After that, they proceed up to Fort King, and they're pretty low on supplies at this point. I think they've been given $8,500 by the Louisiana legislature. They've been traveling now for something like a week and a half, so they're almost out of supplies, and particularly they're low on fodder for their horses. So they go up to Fort King, assuming that they'll be able to resupply, and not understanding that a Fort King's been out of the loop since Dave's unit never reached Fort King, and being a. Outposts, kind of in the middle of nowhere they really aren't very well equipped for supplies themselves try to help them what they can and then he has to send other soldiers to fort drain to see what they can collect from there fort drain being located in western marion county and that was the fort that protected the personal uh, plantation of duncan clinch the de facto head of the war in florida at the start they go and get what they can from Fort Drain. Again, not a lot of supplies to be had. Clinch is just keeping his own men fed. They proceed down to the Whitlacoochee, and they head to the point where Clinch had had his first engagement at the December 31st, 1835. The immediate engagement where Seminoles are attacking Gade and Clinch is actually on his way at the same time to go attack the Seminole. Gaines gets to that boarding spot, and that wasn't a particularly good fording spot for Clinch in the first place. And it's even worse when Gaines gets there. He decides he can't cross the river at that point with the Coochie and head downriver. The lead unit is led by Lieutenant Izzard. He's got a series of dragoons out there looking for other fords. What are
0: dragoons?
1: Ah, so dragoons are what are called cavalry at this time. They're they're mounted troops, although in a large part they're basically just mounted infantry. They're moving around the battlefield, and then they usually dismount and engage rather than fighting from horseback, like people might think of the American Western Knights or something like that. Later on, prior to the Civil War, they officially changed them to cavalry and do away with the old dragoon title. At this point, I believe there are only federal units of dragoons, And then what's also interesting is they get some of the interesting weaponry. They get early use of Hall's rifle, which were early breech-loading weapons. Because they end up making them for Dragoons, they end up making a whole variety of modified hulls in different calibers and different sizes. The Dragoons end up becoming the guinea pigs for hulls, rifles, carving, just shortened versions of the normal rifle.
0: And when you're applying Kakoa, you're looking at how Dragoons operate, but you have to apply it towards the terrain in Florida at the time. And you have to look at how would Dragoons operationally want to handle this? How would they doctrinally handle their maneuvers? And how do they actually handle maneuvers based on the terrain and then you have to look at does the terrain today match what the terrain was that they were looking at try to explain how they maneuvered and what they were doing
1: yeah definitely and another thing is troops get used in unique ways during this war through the end of the American Revolution there's a debate on developing light infantry and skirmishing infantry what happens in this war is they end up having to utilize a lot of different types of troops in different ways for example most of the fort are often manned by artillery units whether or not they actually have any guns with them at all and artillery often gets sent into the field but the average campaign has maybe one cannon with it they basically become light infantry and then the same thing with the dragoons if you've got nice open fields and open terrain this fast force that can move across the battlefield quickly sometimes reinforce, and then you're still using the older style of european tactics you might still conduct shock charges on the other hand, in this war, use of horses is like, hindered since most of the battlefields aren't actually fields. They either end up being like thick infantry when not being used on horse very often at all, or in this case, they're basically used as scouts, which does become very important in this war because the first two years have fought around the Withlacoochee and it's a constant game of where fords and bridges are.
0: So, to bring us back to the military campaign, Gaines is trying to cross a ford where Clinch had attempted to cross, but he finds it's not viable. But he has Dragoons who could scout out a better spot for a fort. What does he do then? Ding sends
1: his vanguard out, the Dragoons, to scout the fort. A couple miles downstream clinches Crossing Spot. Izzard's advanced Dragoons are engaged by a handful of Seminoles. In the process Izzard's actually wounded himself. Eventually as this battle goes on he dies from that wound. James follows up with his column along the north banks of Whitlacoochee and becomes engaged and decides to withdraw from the river a little bit and head a little bit farther north. So he's close, but not right on the river bank and decides to build a fortified encampment. They end up naming the encampment or fortification Izzard after Lieutenant James Izzard. At this point, the Seminole are able to be on both sides of the river, traveling back and forth, and pin down this encampment. That starts on February 28th.
0: After this initial skirmish, Gaines pulls his troops back, they set up a hasty fighting position, they establish a camp, they name it for the fallen officer, Lieutenant James Izzard, and settle in for the night. What happens now?
1: What happens is Gaines immediately takes a defensive position when he arrives there. And fire is constant. It's seminal, while well, not always having a constant stream of fire, are at least occasionally firing at them. They decide that they want to get some sort of protection, and so they build a brief breastwork, uh, about two logs high, um, with a very, very shallow trench behind it. What happens is they really make no attempt to then break out after that. They just, they pin down, and then Gaines immediately starts writing to clinch for help they never attempt to actually engage the Seminole outright. He's just relying on outside help. On the other hand, it's the way the battlefield goes shows a lot of interesting things about the way the Seminole view the war. In that, A, the messenger was allowed to get out, even though essentially by this point, once they've constructed their encampment, Gaines is more or less completely surrounded. The Seminoles can easily move to block them in if they want to. However, they don't necessarily do that. It's this sporadic gunfire that heats up and then cools down. And this Goes on for several days february 28th is when they get bogged down keep in mind that they leap year that year so there is a february 29th every day gaines is sending out messengers to clinch we know these messengers are actually reaching clinch the ava seminoles aren't shooting messengers they could have starved them out easily that way and just cut them off from communication but they don't do that and then what happens is gaines troops are out of food already because the supplies they got from port king are long gone and what little supplies they have to drain are running out. They needed need to do leave Drain, engage the Seminole, defeat them, and then that would be the end of the war. That's kind of the way Gaines thought this was going to work. That it was going to be a quick thing like Clinch's initial battle. And it just drags on. Being a battle, foraging parties do go beyond the extent of the encampment and they're not completely wiped out or anything like that. And a lot of times the Seminole allow them to forge. So they go out, they forage for wood, they'll forage for food, and as things get worse, they're basically resorting to eating their horses, they're eating any dogs that have been traveling with them, Just because they're out And the things They can't feed the horses anymore There's no fodder They're pinned down Nothing's really happening and then eventually on March 5th, they're approached under a flag of truth by a handful of Seminoles saying that they would like to parlay. That begins a series of negotiations between members of Gaines' staff and the Seminole. They go back and forth. By March 8th, they've pretty much worked out a deal where Gaines more or less agrees to allow the Seminole to live south of the Withlacoochee, and that the Americans really won't invade or go after them, ideally to ends the war. Now, there are a couple of problems is that Gaines doesn't have the authority to do this. And then on top of that, not only does Gaines not have the authority to necessarily negotiate on behalf of the American government, he doesn't even have the authority to be doing what he's doing at Fort. Winfield Scott is actually at the scene by this point. He had moved to Picolotta on the St. John's River when he was told to handle the situation following Gade's battle, and then he's since moved to Fort Durant. He's actually with Clinch when they're seeing these letters come in. But the thing is, these are petty men. Gaines and Scott hate each other. They consider they're the chief rival for eventually attaining the top position in the U.S. military. And in fact, because they were both veterans of the War of 1812, they're similar age, they've come along together. The U.S. military actually promoted Alexander McComb over the two of them so that they wouldn't have to kick a side. So it's like, these guys really don't like each other. Scott is willing to allow Gaines to die. But what happens is that after a certain period of time, Clinch does form up his unit, does form up his army, grabs what supplies he can from Fort Grain, and then heads to go aid Gaines. Scott is not immediately with him during this. But Clinch doesn't know about the negotiations going on between Gaines and the Senate. On March 8th, while it sounds like a deal is pretty close to being agreed with, the sides really haven't been firing at each other. Both sides are in range of each other, interacting and such. Clinch's force comes up on the rear side of this negotiation going on and has no idea. They see Seminoles, so the vanguard opens fire. Seminoles immediately disperse. That ends the battle of Camp Izard. Clinch's main body then arrives, starts feeding the beleaguered soldiers, the Louisianans. In total, there were about 1,200 US forces there under game, about 700 Louisiana volunteers, and then around five to maybe 600 US regulars and officers. They were basically starving at this point. Gaines formally hands over authority to Clinch. They march back to Fort Drain. Couple awkward days between Gaines and Scott of Fort Drain. And then Gaines turns around, makes his way back to Louisiana. Another important point on all this, to kind of show you how all these wars are connected, is this is about the same time as the Texas Revolution. So the time where Santa Ana goes in and eventually attacks the Alamo. It is very likely that the reason why he does that is because the American force that's supposed to be on the Texan border isn't there. While Gaines is supposed to be maintaining a threat to prevent any violence in Texas, his disobedient try to handle the Florida war ends up opening up another theater. Is it possible Santa Ana still would've gone after Goliad and the Alamo and all that? Sure but this does probably have a direct impact it's that these wars aren't happening one at a time. This is all going in a conjunction. And it also plays a role in raising up volunteers and militia units. You literally have people having to pick which war they're going to be involved in. Are you going to send this militia unit to handle the creek removal? Or are you going to send it to Florida for the Seminole removal? And then people also are having that decision of, with the flood of volunteers coming in from across states to go help out at the Alamo, people are having to choose which unit do I join? Which war do I join? And the other thing is it might also lead to a fatigue for some people. Literally some people might have been called up for engagements in wars every decade and might be tired of fights. It's just an interesting connection. It shows how all of this is going on simultaneously. These aren't just isolated wars in a vacuum.
0: In Gaines defense, This was an attack in Florida, and half of Florida, West Florida, fell under his jurisdiction. Given that he was an aggressive commander, and given the gravity of the loss, it's understandable that he would have taken the initiative, in the absence of orders from Washington, to immediately amass a force to take the fight to the Seminole, without delay, to avenge the death of Dade in his command, and seek to restore the Army's honor, and that of America, by such actions.
1: (laughs) You can definitely understand why somebody would be motivated to do something like this. Officers during this time often acted on their own anyways. Think of all the heinous things that Andrew Jackson does during the First Seminole War. Literally killing British citizens while in Spanish territory without a trial. That's a pretty big faux pas, but generals were given a little bit more leeway. The thing is, the news of Dave's loss would have been huge and the predated the Alamo. This really is a big cry. You can definitely understand the, the emotional aspect of trying to seek revenge.
0: Yeah, so Gaines had a sense of urgency to strike back quickly against the Seminole. That's understandable. Where I find fault is he took this force, largely untrained and under-provisioned, into Seminole country with which he was totally unfamiliar.
1: Gaines really, really got in over his head. But the thing is, he had a substantial force, and he just assumed that maybe numerical superiority do it, but they also just don't understand the mobility of the Seminole. That the Seminole do have great intelligence of this area and make absolute wonderful use of the terrain. That's a problem that runs in constant. Every commander that you're dealing with in the Whiplacoochee Theater does so without good terrain knowledge. By the time they have that area thoroughly mapped, there are several roads constructed, there aren't really large engagements in the area anymore. Clean, shot, all, all run into similar problems. Wiseman said, I believe on episode two, that these guys know what they're doing. They're educated people. They're not idiots running out of the woods. That's absolutely true. But the problem is their knowledge doesn't surmount lack of intelligence on terrain. Logistics are a key thing. Supplies are never readily available. Your best areas for supplies are often Geary's Ferry, outside of modern-day Jacksonville, and then Picolata on the St. John's outside of St. August. It's a long ways away to get supplies. There are bad roads. We'll see it in Call's campaign where he tends to set up supply depots because he realized these problems happened to other people in the past. And even just setting up the supply depot becomes a problem in and
0: of itself. We call this the Battle of Camp Izzard, but I've also heard it called the Battle of Fort Izzard. Does it make a difference whether we call it Camp Izzard or Fort Izzard? And if so, why? In other words, what distinguishes a camp from a fort in army parlance? You just
1: refer to the battle as the Battle of Camp Izzard. Sometimes you'll hear it referred to as Fort Izzard as well. I wouldn't really go that far because it doesn't really meet a lot of the other criteria of the other forts. A fort is usually an intentionally set-up outpost. There's usually an order to construct it, and it's holding some sort of strategic point. Even like Fort Alabama, which was largely constructed to house sick and wounded volunteers during a portion of Winfield Scott's campaign, it was still guarding a bridgehead. Whereas Izzard really doesn't hold any strategic value at all. I guess there's a fordable area nearby, but, but that's about it. And the thing is, it's very short-lived. They're there for what, a little over a week. You do have a lot of short-lived forts that last only a month or so, but this is a, a fortified encampment. It's just a place where people are bivouac, and then they just want a little bit of defense around it, as those do the more substantial fortifications where.
0: Why did they name the camp after Lieutenant James Izzard? Was there something to do with his valor in battle, or the fact that he had been a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy, or something else? <laughs> Only five soldiers
1: died at all. It's pretty notable. It makes it easier to give attention to Izzard, but it comes a common theme, Wahoo Swamp. The death of David Moniac, is considered the focal point. It's death of one officer, but yes, deaths of officers got far more attention than the death of privates, volunteers, and, and militiamen as well.
0: Why are Seminole War-era forts and battle sites so hard to excavate?
1: Because they're ephemeral. The thing is, a lot of these forts were occupied for very brief spans of time. For example, Fort Day, the general location was known, but the problem was is it was very difficult to figure out where it was vertically in the soil because you're literally looking for something maybe a centimeter thick. You're gonna have artifacts maybe scattered throughout a foot, whether there's been plowing or bioturbation through animals, roots, or other disturbance freeze uprooting or vandals coming in. All that can kind of obscure what it is, whereas the living layer that you're looking for might only be like a centimeter thick because that fort was only occupied it was built starting in december 1836 and i believe zachary taylor called for it to be dismantled in may 1838 so you're looking at a place where roughly about 50 men at a time would live for less than two years they can be really ephemeral some places like fort alabama predecessor to fort foster is only occupied for a month you know same thing cooper cooper was a very short-lived fort and so the problem is if you look at a prehistoric site, you might be looking at hundreds of years and that might be stacked into a foot of soil. Whereas here you're trying to find what happened around 200 years ago in these really short occupation spans. What makes the battlefields really difficult is combination the interpretation there of the landscape at the time and then the nature of the battles themselves. You're dealing with a largely wetland environment. It's hard to find battlefields in those because if they take place at the edges of the wetlands, it becomes exceedingly hard to metal detect. Just metal detecting around cypress knees can be difficult. Water does strange things, so you really have to be careful how you balance your metal detectors. And then once you get into the water, you get into sawgrass or or dense vegetation, you really can't metal detect at all. So that makes areas disappear. Complicating that, and we'll talk a lot about this in the Water Swamp, people misjudge their own environment. All kinds of terms are thrown out to describe the same landscape are volunteers from Tennessee, really the best people at describing Florida wetland environments. They know what swamps are, but the whole variety of different types of wetlands that you get down here, like wet prairie, are are unique. People report the Battle of Wahoo Swamp over a 10-mile stretch of land. Some people thought that they made it all the way to the Whitlacoochee River, whereas you've got a series of wetlands, sloughs, creeks, and other bodies of water before you even get to the river. And so anyone could be mistaking any one of those waterways for the river itself if they've never actually seen the river before, or they have no experience in that area. the 19 is insanely complicated. Even the accounts of the people who were there aren't necessarily accurate because they couldn't accurately describe what they were seeing. And then the natures of the battlefields, that these are relatively small engagements compared to the American Civil War or even the American Revolution. Camp Izzard, I think it's like five dead on a U.S. military side and like 46 wounded. And that's an abysmal defeat. There were still thousands and thousands of pieces of lead exchange. And that one's a little unique in that it was a battlefield that actually took place on one area over a long period of time. The U.S. forces were pinned down. Whereas a lot of the other battles are particularly moving back. Wahoo Swamp is particularly the Seminoles doing a firing withdrawal across high ground, making the U.S. forces chase them. Half the units end up going way out into the wetlands and just completely get removed from the battle altogether, and then the rest get drawn into a pinch point, which is famous dual lagoons of their battlefield, and that pinch point itself is all a wet area. It's really difficult to metal attack. But the thing is the fact that it was a fighting withdrawal to that defensive point means you end up with this loose scatter of musket balls and lead shots across the landscape and so you don't get the hardened fixed battle lines that you might get at gettysburg or monmouth or something like that you're basically trying to figure out where people are you're not getting one type of musket ball here, one type of musket ball there. You're getting this whole mix as both sides are firing, advancing, or withdrawing, and all that. It becomes very difficult to interpret. You really have to put a lot of thought into it, figure out what direction the battlefields are going, and all that. And so you have to kind of combine that with the terrain analysis, to really
0: figure out what's going on. Something of a paradox for the forts, they didn't have big stones to make a fortress. They didn't have the type of shells that were used in the Castillo de San Marcos. They had trees, so they had to use whatever was available. But because it was not that much trouble to build it, it was not so much of a loss to burn it down at the end of the season and rebuild it again later. That has implications for archeology. span
1: Yes, and so you are looking for certain signatures. For example, Fort King. So there are two forts at Fort King. It was closed at different times. It was closed the first time before the Second War. And it was closed for the summer of 1836. It gets burned down before Call makes it there. What he thinks he's going to resupply, and then the fort's empty and it's been burned down. It gets rebuilt in 1837. For that one there, when you're looking for the first fort, you expect to find Byrne's signature. And we see that in certain areas. However, because that one was then reconstructed on it, portions of the burned area were definitely cleared, and then the second fort was actually dismantled to basically build the town of Ocala. So you end up with two completely different signatures. On the other hand, the other fort might be even more ephemeral, because again, if you're not really going to get attacked if You're way out like the Panhandle, you might not need nearly as much protection. On top of that, it's not like Seminoles really have siege equipment. They're not really castles as much as they are places to keep some supplies and usually keep horses. A lot of times the soldiers would encamp outside the fort itself because they're small, squalid,
0: and soldiers probably stink. In addition to training to fight, soldiers were also trained to build things, like forts or bridges.
1: How soldiers are trained part of Chelsea Welch's dissertation. Soldiers were taught to build bridges out of rock. And then you get to Florida and suddenly you have limestone, not really good building rock. And for the most part, it's just small crumbly cobbles or still intact capra, so it's not easily harvested. Now, one notable exception is Fort Sullivan, just south of a green swamp near Plant City, Florida. That one supposedly used two large limestone blocks quarried from local sinks. I was actually involved in the ground truth where it had historically been placed. I think there were two artifacts, a like gun flint and a button, where all that were found and we tried looking to see if we could find the source of these limestone blocks and it just nothing that was completely evident. So that's one where supposedly they use different building techniques, but we still haven't ever been able to locate that one. Oh, and then thinking on, like, Fort Dade, that was one of the notable things about Fort Dade was that Fort Dade was not necessarily a palisade fort. It was built using some of the pre-existing breastworks because the place had been a camping site for anyone along the Fort King Road, like Eustace had camped there during his wing of Winfield Scott during 1836 campaign. They had to incorporate the breastworks that were there from the intemporary encampment Because of a lack of wood. The bridge over the width there had been constructed and had already been burned down, so that's why they were building the fort to protect the bridge. Sizable amount of wood had already been used. So when they start building the fort, they have to get creative on how they use the wood, because the bridge is the priority. So they reutilize old breastwork and then they do a pattern that we see at other places like Micanopy, where you kind of make your buildings the outer walls of the fort. So they have sheds on at least two sides of the fort, where their back wall is also the exterior wall. It just depended how badly an area had been deforested. And then on top of that, if any of these forts are placed near areas where the Seminole had been previously, especially if the Seminole had been there for a long period of time, going to, say, the 1700s, that area might be largely deforested itself. Life at this time in general requires wood for almost every aspect. There is that idea that this is replaceable, but they do get a certain point where it becomes a very, very valuable resource that they kind of underestimated.
0: Something like the Castillo was built to last, and it's lasted for hundreds of years. But there wasn't a need to have 500 forts to last for hundreds of years. And then the campaign moved south. All those would have been factors in what materials that they used for a fort, because they might not be thinking that they'd be needing to keep the fort for very long. Yeah, the
1: Castile was probably meant to be a symbol for the Spanish. Like, that was a firm presence in a new place. Whereas fort systems, which evolved, and that thing is that the strategy definitely evolved. Fort King is basically put up because the governor and the Indian agent Gad Humphreys are concerned about maintaining the boundaries of the reservation from the 1823 treaty. On the other hand, by the time Jessup takes command, being the third or fourth overall commander, depending on how you're counting, of the Second War, he's the one who starts building the string of forts along the Fort King Road, Fort Foster, Fort Gade, and then Fort Armstrong has already been constructed around the time that he takes over. Whereas when Zachary Taylor replaces him, Taylor implements the square system. And the idea is that there'll be one fort um, for each square and there'll be patrols that will cover it. Ironically, it's Zachary Taylor who also is the one who closes Fort Gate because that's not the basis for his square. He uses the idea that That bridge can then just be covered with patrols, and the centralized fort somewhere else. And then when the war moves south, the Forts only play a role in continual occupation of an area. Now, we know that the Seminoles were, were fluid. They moved through the landscape easily. At the end of the war, there are all kinds of letters coming out of Georgia talking about the Seminole and Okefenokee, you know, the swamps of South Georgia. So the thing was, is just because a theater of war expired didn't mean that Seminoles were fully confined to an, any area. Forts still had a relative purpose of clearing up the Shroud of War, and it aided in the mapping process, which also aided in the development of Florida. But yeah, the roles definitely changed and the way they're used, the way they're defended, and the way they're constructed
0: reflects that. You've read all the historical material, the reports, the letters, the memoirs, and so forth, about the actions at Camp Izzard. How did Gary's survey either corroborate that or lead you to a new understanding of what happened at Camp Izzard for that battle? That would have been the first
1: battlefield that Gulf Archaeology excavated and paved the initial information onto what can we look for for seminal armaments. Gary's initial survey, phase one, kind of locate the battlefield and see what condition it was in. Found a bunch of musket balls, food remains, such, and they were encouraged by that. They requested to do a second phase of the project, and that was the one completed in 2001. Kind of the key findings out of that were they were able to find evidence of that trench and the breastwood. They found post holes in some cases, and they found at least one piece of wood that still remained that had lead shot in it. He was actually able to track out their fortification. Additionally, what's become helpful is that was one nice way of evaluating ammunition being used by each side. As I mentioned, battles are very fast-moving, usually fighting withdrawals or moving battles. So the problem is is you don't get hardened battle lines. In the Civil War, if you know that the Federal soldiers stood here and the Confederate soldiers stood there, then depending on where you're seeing the impact of shot or the drop shot, you can make evaluations on their ammunition, so the different types of balls that they use. In this case, it really helps because they were able to see smaller caliber, smaller diameter lead shot into the wood, and it showed a greater variety of ammunition used, which was useful for starting corroboration, Mahon repeatedly talked about the use of Spanish rifles by the Seminoles, and you always have the idea that they're using state-of-the-art guns. But that was in the historic literature. The material culture hadn't really been present yet. You were able to see a whole variety of different types of rounds that impacted this one battle line. Any shot that, that was impacted here came from the other side, and vice versa. You would have .65, .64 size balls used by the American infantry in their .69 calibers. You'd see those scattered throughout the woods. Gives you a better idea just what you're looking at and warns you that you're going to have new unit measurement available in the future. Whether it's types of glass, ceramic, musket balls, any of that. The general patterns definitely verify the first-hand accounts.
0: These Seminole left no written records. Can Gary's survey help us make an educated guess about Seminole intentions?
1: They negotiated with them when they probably didn't have to. Uh, they, they wipe out, or they think they wipe out, the entire unit. They that was to send a message to the U.S. government that they can effectively do this if need be. And then after that, they don't really make attempts exterminate troops. They left Gaines out that they didn't force them to starve. And I don't know if the Seminole understood how bad of a condition the American soldiers were in, but they knew what they were doing. When you asked Wiseman, what was the center of gravity on the war? He gave a really good answer in that, in saying that while they understood some intricacies of the U.S. government and dealt with them in one regard or another, that you're fighting the enemy right in front of you. And that's how you're dealing with it. Clearly, there's a changing tactics, And I shows you a different intent that I don't know if the seminal intent was ever really extermination as much as it was bloody the noses of Americans until they just stopped sending troops around. It's just notable that in a time where they could have destroyed them, they didn't, they chose not to. That's a fairly common thing in Native American tactics where they will a lot of times leave people out. It's not necessarily about extermination.
0: Well, the larger point was to be left alone. If letting them survive and come up with an agreement would allow them to be left alone, that was a better course to take. And Gary's survey shows that the Seminole did have the option to starve out Gaines' men if they chose to. What happens
1: after Dave's battlefield, you destroy this entire unit. What happens? More people show up. Or you might get this idea that if I take this action, this is going to be the result. So, yeah,
0: changing strategies. This battle of Camp Izzard is tantalizing because they were so close to having an agreement. And then Clinch's men showed up, and in the fog of war, the shots started and the Seminole withdrew. This brings us to a great what-if of the Second Seminole War. Namely, what if they had secured an agreement before Clinch arrived? Would the Second Seminole War have been over after just a few short weeks? However, we must remind ourselves Gaines had no authority to make an agreement that if there had been an agreement there's no guarantee that the administration in Washington would have accepted it or that the demand for revenge from the American public would have been satisfied.
1: Exactly. You have what happened to, like, Jessup with the capitulation at Fort Dade, where Seminoles, including Osceola, agree to removal, or a large portion of them agree to removal. And then on the eve of being removed outside of Fort Brook, they break out and leap. That might have just been a stalling tactic on the Seminole, and it's possible that this would have gone the same way. But as far as the American government, I think it absolutely would have gone a different way. They would have rejected that. You know, Andrew Jackson's intent was purely removal now uh, Chris Monaco makes a lot of good points in his book there's basically never really an intent to work with the Seminole the idea is always removal or if they could, if some people could get away with it, it would have been extermination when the war comes to an end in 42 when it's just kind of just declared by the military okay we're done with this it's only after you've had a different political administration come in things have just become so rough elsewhere in the country that people just don't care anymore or just been so
0: fatigued by it. Gaines mobilized his troops. Eventually there's this battle at Camp Izzard. But there doesn't seem to be any evidence of strategy or strategic thinking on Gaines' part before he went into this battle. Unless one says the idea was tactically to defeat the Seminole and strategically to then remove them in accordance with U.S. law. That, however, would be a mission or an objective. The strategy would tell you how you would do it.
1: There's really not. And then what still becomes a problem later on is while there are strategies, they're not regularly employed, they don't have enough troops, or they're not employed for long periods of time. Jessup starts up a mini fort system in which case he's going to build a series of forts around the Wikimikuchi to reduce the fog of war, improve intelligence, and just reduce the likelihood that the Seminole are going to be able to repopulate the area easily. Taylor comes in after him and eventually implements the military squares, each of which has a fort in it. When he does this, he still dismantles some of the previous era's forts. You have this constant shift in strategy. Taylor, of course, moves the war farther south. Armistead comes back later on and realizes, oh, there's still activity in the wip and does his attempt to kind of chase that out of the area. If all these people have strategy, there are different plans in there. Sticking with it is a problem. Like even Scott. Scott comes in. He's got this nice three-pronged attack. This clever idea in European warfare might have worked, but lack of knowledge of the terrain means that everything is poorly timed. Lack of supplies means that troops have to return to Fort Brook whenever they're out of supplies rather than when they actually rendezvous with other units. And then Scott is one and done. He moves on to a different theater, doesn't want to fight a summer war, and then washes his hands of the war. Might Scott have prevailed? Sure, if he had tried two or three times, but he doesn't. And then you've got people like Call, Carl fails and is not given another chance. Technically, he fails twice, but he wasn't in supreme command at Clinch's battle. Carl already gets removed from command before he even fights the main engagement at the Wahoo Swamp. He's removed from command for failure to engage at the Cooch a month before the Wahoo Swamp. You have strategies that's just very inconsistent.
0: With public support, the government has the leeway to enact a strategy to achieve its objectives. However, without public support, the government may modify its strategy to achieve less than its stated objectives when the conflict began.
1: Absolutely. And then, Matt, also you have to remember that the Texas Revolution has gone on. So things like Remember Goliad and Remember the Alamo have already probably started to put thoughts of Dade's massacre in the back of their head. Like today where you've got this constant news rush, so it's almost hard to focus on one scandal until the next scandal takes over. This would have been on a scale of weeks, but still going on, that just constant news of these conflicts going through, you end up in these similar emotional uh, aggression that we see in Vietnam and Afghanistan. It's a very, very similar style of engagement where you have shifting military strategies
0: that are often unclear, poor understanding of what motivates the opposing forces. What are some lessons that you can share with our listeners, either about the battle or about what Gary discovered and wrote about for its report?
1: Being one of the first major studies showed that it could be done. So again, these are smaller, tend to be more ephemeral battlegrounds. And then they showed that the methods that we use in conflict archaeology apply to this war. It just set up the precedent and standardized the methods that uh, archaeology uses. nice to go in and corroborate the information. Just because, like I said, you get such little small piecemeal thing from a lot of these other battles. And a lot of these are they're short ephemeral little engagements. So nice to get it started. It, it was heavily involved in the early formation of the Seminole Wars Foundation. I think this is their initial support for a field project. You've got erratic things here and there. Wiseman's been working on this stuff since the 80s, but start getting a lot of information. And then, like I said, it sets up golf archaeology for a series of projects working throughout the Whitlacoochee. It's just a good jumping off
0: point. What does this portend for the public? Can the public go to this site now? Can the public learn something from this site? Well, unfortunately, no. The battlefield is not
1: accessible to the public at the moment. It received attention at various times. I believe the Seminole Wars Foundation had some interest in creating an interpretive center. Unfortunately, that wasn't able to go through. And that it gets brought up um, usually by local politicians to want to create some sort of signage or interpretation, at least nearby, if not on the site. One day we will be able to tour it, but right now it's it's not supposed to be publicly accessible. And they would have to find a way to make it a little bit more accessible. It is a trek back there.
0: You mentioned in this that they left from Fort King and stopped at Fort Drain. Is Fort Drain on the list for Gary to explore? (laughs)
1: Drain is a place that we regularly have interest in. If we hear of any private sector projects that open up in the vicinity of Fort Drain, we're usually interested. Unfortunately, the main area where Old Lang Syne and Fort Drain are listed is, I believe, a mine for like a cat litter or something like that. Now, a lot of people have a general idea of where Fort Drain's at, but it's very heavily damaged, if not completely destroyed.
0: Sean Norman, thanks for joining us again for the Seminole Wars.
1: Thanks for having me. I look forward to more discussions in the future. It should only get better.
0: If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, Articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021, all rights reserved. Front bumper music The Devil's Garden Roastem provided by kind permission of Reedy Onman. Back bumper music second seminal win by Jed Merum and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman, all rights reserved.